Amen. Find your place this morning, if you would, in your Bible in the book of Matthew, chapter 13. Matthew, chapter 13. We'll read there in just a moment. If you don't have a Bible, you can use one there from the seat in front of you. And if you're visiting with us today or you don't have a, a Bible that you call your own, that's our gift to you this morning. If you don't have one, we want you to have a copy of God's Word. And so, if you would, find your place there in Matthew, chapter 13. And uh, while you're finding your place, take a look at your bulletin, a number of different things to point out this morning, and a couple different prayer requests to update you on before we do read and uh, draw note to a couple things. If you will, you've been praying for, we've been praying for Grace Dowdy uh, over these last few months, back since August, and Grace had a, a stroke and has been struggling with her health and never really fully recovered after that, and I was they will go visit with uh, her yesterday and with Henry, and um, they. She's been in hospice for a little while, but uh, there's just been some changes in her in her body and her health and different things. And they don't think um, that Henry doesn't think there'll be many days left. And so, if you would uh, pray for their family this week, a number of their families come in and will be coming in. And so, if you would pray for the Dowdy family, I just want to give you an update on her. And then a praise from Peggy Wharton. She sent me a message yesterday and asked me specifically to thank the church for praying for her. You know, she had a number of issues and she was sick and in the hospital with the infection and she had fallen and she had COVID, all sorts of things on top of it. And um, she is at home and recovering and she said that it's the Lord that gives us health and she can tell that God's people are praying. And so we want to thank you for that. Then a few events coming up in the next few weeks if you want to get your Christmas music fix in there on December 12th and 13th, two different uh, concerts. You see the one there, the handbell, uh, the homeschool handbell choir, uh, the time there is wrong, it's my fault, it says 4.30 is the time for that concert, we'll announce that one more time next Sunday, but uh, the time there is 4.30. This is a bell choir made of a bunch of different local kind of elementary age homeschool students and a number of our uh, church homeschool students have been in that bell choir and it's directed by Lori Ferguson, and uh, they host a couple of concerts at the end of each of their semesters, and this one's a Christmas-themed one, and uh, they gear this particular concert at 4.30 uh, next Monday, I believe it is, and it's kind of geared toward seniors. Anyone's welcome to attend, but something special that they like to do. They had started doing it even before. Uh, they used to go into in and out of nursing homes and retirement homes, and now they host one particularly for any seniors that can attend, and so we hope that you'll plan to be a part of that. Our school has a Christmas concert coming up. And then uh, you see there the week of Christmas, a number of ways that we're going to be celebrating together physically. And uh, Christmas breakfast coming up on the 18th that morning. And I'll give you a little bit more detail about that in the next couple of weeks. And then a candlelight service that we have each year. And then Christmas Day. And we're excited about each of those things. And so we're hoping and praying that you'll plan to be a part of each of those in these next few weeks. If you would, look at Matthew 13 this morning. Matthew 13. And um, we're going to read the first portion of this. There's a, a significant shift uh, here in our passage today in the ministry of Jesus and in the book of Matthew. We're going to talk a little bit about that as we walk our way through. In fact, let's start in Matthew 12. Kind of overlap a little bit from the end of last week, those last few verses. And then it will lead us into... Uh, this transition that Jesus makes today. 
Verse 46 says, While he yet talked to the people, of chapter 12, verse 46, Behold, his mother and his brethren stood without desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. It's an interesting conversation, isn't it? For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. Verse 1. The same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside. And great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spake many things unto them in parables. Notice that phrase. He spoke these things in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But others fell on good, fell into good ground, and brought forth fruit. And some a hundredfold, and some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear? Let him hear. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it is not given. For whosoever hath to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. Therefore speak I unto them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand. And seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is wax gross, and their ears are full of, are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you, that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. And then he gives this explanation. Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. When any one heareth the word of the kingdom, and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one, and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which received seed by the wayside. But he that received the seed into stony places, the same is he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it. Yet hath he no root in himself, but dureth for a while. For when tribulation and persecution arise because of the word, by and by he is offended. Literally means he trips up, falls away. He also that received seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word. And the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becometh unfruitful. But he that received seed into the good ground is he that reheareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit and bringeth uh, bringeth forth, some 
and a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Lord, we ask this morning that you would guide and direct and lead our hearts directly to you this morning. Uh, may we first find our place in your gospel and in what you are and in our relationship to you. And as you reveal yourself to us in your nature and your characteristics, may it show us our own need for you. We long to worship you this morning, and we can do that by our obedience and our submission to your word. So convict us, work in our hearts. We repent and ask your forgiveness even now for how we have allowed our minds and hearts to be distracted from you and from your word this week. We ask that by your mercy and grace, you would overcome our staleness, that you would um, overpower our apathy towards you this morning, and that your spirit would convict our hearts where we fail, and that we would find rest and refuge in you, as you said just a couple chapters ago, that you asked us to come find rest in you. And so we ask that you would lead us to Jesus this morning, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Finding your place again in Matthew 13. We're going to jump right in this morning. A a good portion of this chapter that we're going to try to cover today. Um, Although I confess, when I first was looking over Matthew 13, I thought, these all tied together. Maybe we could do the whole chapter in one service. And then I realized that would never happen. And so uh, we decided more wisely to just approach today because there is a a significant shift in Jesus' ministry in the setting and even in his style of teaching that's about to happen from Matthew 12 and into Matthew 13. And so let's set the setting for just a moment as this is a very familiar parable, most likely to many of us, this parable of Jesus has actually not only just in spiritual realm, but it's been used in a a number of different facets and uh, as a method of teaching or talking about receiving teaching, not just in the spiritual realm, but even just in the secular. This is a very familiar story or passage or parable to most people. And it it means it's not one of those that's like, oh, we've misunderstood this all along. We're going to find some new revelation about it. It means what Jesus tells us that it means. It's very clear. But before we look at that parable, particularly this morning, I want us to note what shifts Jesus into teaching like this. Now, we, we're around it. We're, we're, we're in services. We go to Bible studies. We have adult groups. We do lessons. We're used to reading Jesus teach in parables. It's something that's common to us. But I want you to note this morning that this was not common so far in Jesus' ministry. You could argue that so far in the book of Matthew, there's been three parables used. And they're very short, almost more illustrations than they were parables. Uh, Some would go into some of his nuanced one-line illustrations, say, well, that's a parable. Well, Well, maybe. But for the most part, Jesus' teaching in the book of Matthew has been very direct and straightforward. In fact, if you were to look back, you don't have to turn there for time's sake, but Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, starts similarly to what we had. Matthew 5 says, Seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, or sitting down, 
his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. And then he goes through chapter 5 through 7, which we've studied a couple of months ago, and he gives them very direct truth. This is what the kingdom of God is like. This is who has access to the kingdom of God. This is how God's kingdom is so different than the kingdom of the world. The law has said this about adultery and murder and uh, uh, bitterness and greed. I say, take the spirit of the law and apply that to your lives as well. Don't be angry and don't lust. And he, he speaks very directly to them about God's kingdom. So that happens as he's teaching all along the way. But so far, he's used very few parables to teach. In Matthew 13, he's going to use seven in one chapter, back to back to back to back. And he's going to use about 18 parables throughout the rest of the book of Matthew. Now notice the shift. We're, we're about halfway through Matthew. He's used three, and now all of a sudden he's going to use 18. Seven right here. Boom, all of a sudden. Why is that, and why is this significant? Well, as we study through the rest of Matthew, Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus teaching. Matthew 8 and 9, it's Jesus' miracles. He's working with great power. And then in Matthew 10, he calls particular apostles and disciples that have stuck with him, not the multitudes that are going back and forth and not people that have just come out for intrigue to see miracles, but the ones that he knows are truly following. And he says, we need to pray that God will send laborers out to share this gospel with the world. And he says, and you're going to be the first ones. And he sends them out. Then in Matthew 11 and 12, and we, we see this response to what has happened so far in Jesus' ministry. So we have teaching and his authoritative teaching, his miracles proving that he has the power to teach that way because he's the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And in no unequivocal way, he claims to be even the Son of God. And then in Matthew 10, he sends people out, calls them to himself. And in Matthew 11 and 12, you have people's response. We've been studying that for the last few weeks. We have doubt about Jesus. We have some that are intrigued. They're curious. They, they want to know what he's going to say. It's just different than anything else they've experienced, and they see the miracles. We have some that are disinterested. They come, they hear him, and they go home <coughs> and remain unchanged. And Jesus confronts that because he talks about the three cities of Galilee that he continues to minister in he says, you've seen great miracles, but you haven't repented. And so Jesus talks about them uh, in, in that way. Then you have the Pharisees who knew the law, and, but they just outright rejected him. And now in Matthew 13, you have this transition. I want us to think about what's happened in the last chapter, Matthew 12, for just a moment. If your eyes can glance back over it, just look there for a moment. <clears throat> in Matthew chapter 12, because it's important to note this. Because don't ignore, in Matthew 13, verse 1, the first three words are, the same day. So, so go back and look at what has happened. Matthew wouldn't tell us that if it wasn't important for us to know. He's not just filling it in. He's packing three and a half years of the ministry of the Son of God into one book or one letter. He's not wasting any of his words. And so he says, the same day this happened, and Jesus taught in parables, the same day as what? Well, Matthew chapter 12, verse number 1. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn. His disciples were hungry, began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. So, so what happened on this same day? We know that Jesus is going about and that he is teaching, he's healing, he's calling people. The responses come. But then in chapter 12, there's accusation toward Jesus. 
And they say, you are not upholding the Sabbath. <coughs> Excuse me. They say, you and your disciples don't uphold the Sabbath. They're picking corn and they're not supposed to work. We talked about all that and how the Pharisees had a whole wrong view. They had added hundreds of Sabbath laws to what God had actually intended. And so he's teaching and he's bringing his disciples along and all of a sudden he's accused of something. Then there's this system almost of entrapment. They bring a man with, or Jesus goes into their synagogue to teach and they bring a man with a withered hand. And as they bring that man to him, they're kind of tempting him, trying to say, are you going to heal on the Sabbath? That's kind of a form of work. You're not supposed to heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus does that anyway. Then the, the Pharisees, they accuse him of outright, uh, uh, they blaspheme him, and they call him even a work or a minister of Satan, the devil himself. So you see the progression. If you're thinking about it from your eye standpoint, Jesus is not having a great day in terms of the way that people are responding to him. They've accused him. They have entrapped him. They have blasphemed him. And then they have ultimately outright rejected him, even to the place that they're going to kill him. They have started to make plans to do so. And on that same day, now Jesus responds to that, we talked about last week, is he gives them the gospel. And he gives them the gospel. We saw, we read just a moment ago, and they bring, they say, hey, your uh, family's here, they want to see you. And Jesus, he's not rejecting his own family, but he's trying to teach them about the kingdom. And he says, well, this is my family, talking about his apostles and disciples. And then in that day, Notice, if you would, verse number 1 of chapter 13. <clears throat> the same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside. Now, that doesn't sound like a bad day, right? This is Sabbath day. He's gone. All this has happened just like you and I. If we were going to experience something so dramatic in a way of being accused of someone trying to trap us, someone saying that we are of Satan and then outright rejecting their relationship with us, Jesus is going out to breathe for a moment. Imagine being the Son of God. He is burdened. We know that he has compassion when he looks at the multitudes. But he is, he's also looking at the Pharisees and their rejection, and he's seeing all these things, and he goes out and he sits by the seaside. And great multitudes gathered together unto him, and so that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And just a side note, this Spurgeon, uh, Charles Spurgeon wrote that this was a pretty interesting circumstance. The teacher is sitting, the audience is standing, and he said there'd be less sleeping in the congregation if that were the same arrangement today. <laughs> but I'll remain standing. But if you would, notice what happens. It says, and he spake many things unto them in parables, saying. Now, this is significant. It doesn't make a big deal to us because we're used to Jesus teaching in parables. But notice who it was significant to. Look, if you would, at verse number 10. So he teaches the parable to this multitude. He's sitting on a boat after going out trying to spend a moment alone. Multitudes come to him. Now, think about it. It's the same people, same multitudes. Hundreds, maybe thousands of the people that he's taught all around Galilee. It's the same people that are coming back out to him. And he looks out at the same exact people that he has taught already in the Sermon on the Mount, all throughout Galilee. He has given them truth after truth after truth after truth. But they've rejected it. They continually, they don't repent. Many of them don't listen. They don't really take it to heart. 
So now Jesus doesn't speak in his direct truth. He speaks in an illustration, a parable. And why is this significant? Notice verse 10. The disciples came unto him, uh, came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? So we may not pay a lot of attention to this and say, well, big deal, Jesus taught in parables. He always did that. Well, evidently to this point, he didn't do that a lot because the disciples come to him. Jesus, you have this huge crowd. It's time to talk about the kingdom and all the things you've been teaching about. Why don't you talk the way you have been? Why are you talking in parables? Sounds like a children's story of some sort. So it's significant and it stands out. And before we really walk our way through this parable, I want you to take a look on, on the back of your lesson sheet there today, separate from your notes. I want you to note some things about parables. Let's ask why and what is significant about Jesus shifting to these parables. He's going to explain it why in a moment in the text, but I want to take just four or five minutes and think about this this morning. And here's why. Because we're about to enter, like I said, seven back-to-back parables. And then through the rest of the book of Matthew, when Jesus is teaching his disciples, through the whole rest of the book of Matthew, when he's teaching his disciples, he's still fairly straightforward. Those that are following him, those that received him, those that his relation, their relationship is by faith. But through the rest of the book of Matthew, when Jesus speaks to great multitudes, most often through the rest of the book, he teaches in parables. You see, that's a significant thing. Well, why is that? Now, you see his explanation. Look at verse number 11. He answered and said to them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but, it's not, but to them it is not given. Now, it doesn't mean somebody literally gave something to the disciples that they didn't give to the others. He's saying you're kind of, you're disposed to, your relationship with me is by faith. You get and hear and you're receiving the truth that I'm teaching. They are not. And so I'm teaching this in a different way. Notice verse 12. <clears throat> For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundant. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. He says, I have told them the truth. I have taught them the kingdom over and over and over and over again. I've told them the truth, and they have not received it. They have not repented. They have not accepted this. So now I'm teaching in a different way. And he says, and if you by faith will follow me and by faith are trusting me and are seeking after, you're going to know and understand these things that I teach, even though they're in parables. But those that are coming to me as a novelty, they look at me as just something else. They look at me as a social thing to do. They look at me as maybe a chance for a miracle. They look at me as entertainment. They're not going to understand these things. They're not going to understand these parables. They're not going to know the truth. And notice he goes on and he explains that it's even prophesied in Isaiah that the people, he says, by hearing you shall hear and not understand. You're going to see but not perceive. He says this was prophesied all along, that there are some people that will hear the Messiah but not really understand what he's teaching, see him but reject him and not actually perceive that he is the real Messiah. Some people have taught that parables, that Jesus starts using parables from here on out to mask his kingdom and and to not bring up controversy with them and that he's doing it to hide it from those that will not be saved. But I don't think it could be further from the truth. Jesus is teaching to draw out people to himself. Notice in the back there on your notes, there's a few things that we've pointed out. The word parable means to throw alongside of. It means literally to cast beside of in addition to or to support and help. 
And Jesus uses parables to, to teach and to bring along and to, to guide our minds toward him. But notice, it's important that we establish a basic understanding of parables before we move forward because parables are often misinterpreted. And this is what I want to think about for just a couple moments before we look at the parable itself. Because parables are often misunderstood and misinterpreted. Um, there are many bad Bible lessons and thoughts and even and bad Bible sermons on parables because we sort of take creative liberty on them. But there's some basic truths that we have to know about them. Notice, so let's just mention them. Number one, parables are used by Jesus generally to teach one main point or principle. Almost every parable that Jesus teaches is guided toward one driving thought or point. Why is that significant? Because Jesus wasn't using parables to reveal intricate systems of theology or doctrine. Jesus' parables are not where we are forming our system of thought or theology about God himself. They may teach a truth about God, but we don't dig into the details. Why? Notice, because a parable is different than an allegory. An allegory is which every possible facet of the story has a different inner meaning. That is not how Jesus was teaching. Most of the parables are actually fairly brief. They're fairly short. It's an illustration to drive home one point. And here's, when, when you read a parable, if you're not getting the main point of that parable that Jesus is teaching, there's something wrong, and we've got to go back and do that. For instance, let me give you an example. One of the longer parables, and one of the more popular parables, is the parable of the prodigal son. Not a true story, per se, as Jesus taught it. He taught it as a parable. I'm going to tell you a story about a man who had two sons, and those two sons lived and served with him. And then one of them went astray, and it gives a description of what his life was like when he left the house. He took his uh, inheritance with him. He wasted it all on riotous living, it says, and then eventually he came back to the father. When he had wasted it all, he came back to the father. That relationship was restored, and then you have the older son who comes back, and he sees the rejoicing of the father, and yet he's angry about it, and he won't go in, and he won't fellowship, and so in a way, we think about the broken relationship being the one with the prodigal. The prodigal had the broken relationship with his father. No, the prodigal was restored to the father. The older brother is the one that ended the story with a broken relationship. And so the whole point and thrust, what he's teaching, is to the Pharisees and the people of Israel that are angry with him because he is saving sinners, because he's sitting with publicans, because he's bringing in all sorts of evil people in their minds and he's sitting with them bringing them into his family and it's angering them and so jesus stands up and he tells this story about someone who had a relationship with their father but is angry because the father has restored relationship to the one that was astray that's the whole point is that the pharisees and the people of it your relationship with god is broken your heart is far from your father but if we dig wrong into that parable and we search it out, and we start to find every little nuance, we can get totally lost in that parable and completely miss the point. And the same is true with any of these parables. Jesus is teaching one main point, and so we seek to find that. Notice a few other things. that Typically, when Jesus teaches parables, he calls people to hear them. He does the same thing in our passage today. He's calling them, he says, hear this. Not, not just let it go in your ears, but understand it. Think about it. He told them these things that, because it's something that they could remember. 
When they went back from the Sermon on the Mount, they may not have been able to remember every beatitude that Jesus taught. But this is fairly easy to recall. It's fairly easy to remember. So Jesus is saying, hear this, think about it, get the truth from it. Parables were used by Jesus, notice this, to illustrate, not to obscure. They were used to direct toward the truth, not to confuse. They were used to engage the mind, not to enforce something by rule. They were used to draw hearts toward him, not to turn him away, turn them away. Parables were used to challenge people to think, not to dumb down the truth. This is not Jesus getting to a point in his ministry where he's frustrated because people aren't repenting. So he's like, well, they're not believing the one message of the word of God that I'm teaching, so I'm going to have to dumb it down and, and give them something different. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's using it to direct them to the truth through what he is teaching, this illustration. And finally, Jesus used parables to separate those that desired to grow and follow from those that were not truly seeking him. And with that in mind, let's look quickly this morning at this parable that we're probably very familiar with. You can look on the inside, and there's it's a fairly simple outline that just walks through. But we have in verses 1 through verse number 8 the actual <clears throat> parable. And notice the things that are mentioned. Jesus just teaches it as a story, as an illustration. He says, Behold, a sower went forth to sow, and when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside. Now, there's two things in this story that are constant all the time. They never change. There's no difference mentioned about them at all. And that's the sower and the seed. It doesn't talk about different kinds of seed. And it doesn't talk about different sowers. And that's significant. We'll mention that in a moment. Then he talks about soil. And he really doesn't, depending on how you look at it, differentiate different types of soil. It appears as he's talking about sort of the same area. It's the condition of the soil the circumstance, the environment that that soil is in, and then how the seed responds to it. So there's two constants, sower and seed, and then there's variables, the condition of the soil. And he walks through, and notice, he gives us those. He gives us first, there's this packed down wayside. As people would walk through uh, the land of Galilee, much of it was used. Any possible area could be used for farmland and for crops and so they would have these little walkways they didn't pave roads or spend a lot of time working on that until really till Rome came through but most of Galilee is going to be trodden dirt path from years of walking on it almost probably hard as concrete just to pack down and it's saying this wayside seed fell on that and it was never going to get in no matter how much it rained no matter how much happened it was never going to get in in time to be saved from the birds coming and grabbing it taking it away then he gives this second soil or the second condition the shallow ground where there's stone beneath it and he said it springs up quick he says there's not much earth verse five and it sprung up quick because it had no deepness of earth but then there was no root and so it withered away this kind of gives the picture if you know how growth works i'm not a scientist but i know just enough about plants to kill most of them and so you put the seed in the ground right and if it has some soil and it goes in and the seed begins to grow down before it ever begins to grow up. And what happened is the seed goes into the soil <coughs> and it starts growing down. But there's no room for it to go because the rock is there. So immediately it grows up. This would have been really fun and encouraging. You see, wow, man, we have, we have crops starting in like two days. This is, this is going to be the best crop ever. But it's because it's forced to grow up rather than down. And so it, because it has no root, the sun comes out, it dries it up, it withers, and it dies. 
And then the next soil, he says it was sown, and all of a sudden there was thorns covering the ground. There's no room, and it chokes out the life of the crop because it had no room to grow or had no source of nourishment, and it was choked out by those things. And then the final one is good ground. And notice what he shows classifies it as good ground. The only thing he says that makes it good ground, we could say it was tilled up, it was plowed, it was removed of all the thorns and the rocks were gone. Notice the only thing he says that classifies as good ground is it produced fruit. It, it, something happened in it. It was changed and it grew and it gave room for growth. And so you have Jesus teaching this parable. And then Jesus exhorts the crowd. Notice that, verse number 9. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. And we see that number two. It says he taught many of these same people the direct truths about God's kingdom. Now he's going to illustrate it. This is not a call just for people to listen, for everyone to listen. This is a call saying, those of you that are spiritual, spiritually sensitive, take this into your heart and grow from it. And he calls each of us to do the same. Then we gave this explanation as to why Jesus is using parables. And we've already mentioned that. We won't spend time here, but we see that there in verses 10 through 17. Those who do not approach Jesus' teaching in an attitude of faith, they remain ignorant of the parable's true meaning. And those that Jesus teaches and that, that are willing to, by faith here, they hear his words and they understand and they believe it. They follow it. But then Jesus mercifully gives us this explanation. I want you to notice that in verses 18 down through verse 23. And I want you to think very quickly about why this would have stood out. Because when we read this, there's nothing that, oh great, sow our seed, he's passing it out, there's different soils, yay. The, the typical interpretation of this in our own minds is there's people that when they're lost, they've never heard the gospel, that the seed is the gospel, we are the sowers, or maybe Jesus, the Holy Spirit is the sower. It's sown out, and it lands on different types of lives. Some of them are so downtrodden by the world, the seed never gets in, they don't understand at all, and they never get saved. And then you have the rocky ground. It's like somebody that gets saved, make a profession in Jesus. It looks like their faith's going to take off. But then as soon as they really face any trouble with it or have to make a change in their life, then they die out and, and it kind of fades and it proves they weren't real to begin with. Then you have the thorny ground, people that go and they're placed and they grow. But then eventually, slowly, the world chokes away at them and their faith is fallen to the side. And then you have people that their lives are clean and good and they receive it without the distractions of the world, without the hardship, and they follow, they're committed to Jesus, and they grow and they produce fruit. That's not a horrible interpretation of this because that is what our hearts are like before we're Christians. That is what it's like when the Holy Spirit is ministering to us the gospel. But I don't know about you, but, but just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean my heart is always good ground. I want you to think about that for a moment. It's not like, well, I'm the Christian, so my heart is the final one. I, I, I must be the good soil because it's stuck. It's, I, I've been in church. I've been saved. I've been these things. No, he's speaking to the condition of man's heart. It doesn't say just the plan of salvation is the seed. No, it just says the word of the kingdom. In, in uh, Mark chapter 4, the same parable, and in Luke chapter 8, the same parable, both of them phrase it this way. The seed is the word of God. That's what it teaches us. So the seed is the word of God being sown into our lives and our hearts truthfully can represent all four of these types of soil at different points based on how we're dealing with the circumstances of life. And so I want you to think about what stood out immediately to these people. If you were living in an agrarian and agricultural society and you hear this illustration about a farmer going out to sow, 
there's something about this story that should immediately stand out to us that we probably don't always see because most of us aren't. Some of you are great gardeners. Most of us are not farmers. So why would a sower, here, here's the thing that would have immediately stood out to the disciples and the people listening. Well, whoever that sower is, is not a good farmer. Like, why? These are some of the most, they would have been very frugal. It talks about how they would have prayed to the Lord of the harvest for their harvest. They're so, so reliant. They're kind of on edge all year. Are we going to get enough rain? Are we going to get too much rain? They were so reliant. They couldn't waste anything. And yet here is this sower who is sowing seed. Now, he's not using a broadcast sower that you would put grass seed down in your yard with. And he's not using a disc plow with a 90-foot-wide John Deere attachment on the back of it doing a huge farm. They would have leather satchels full of seed, and they would go along, and they would throw the seed. Now, I don't know about you. I've done that some throwing grass. It's not that hard to make sure the seed lands where you want it to land. And so when they heard this story, immediately they're thinking, why is he throwing seed on the road? (laughs) Why is he throwing it in land that has rocks underneath of it? Because they would actually sow the seed once after it had been uh, tilled, and then they would till it in again. So they would know exactly where the good ground was. And then why is he throwing seed into a bunch of thorns? He's wasting his seed. Why is he doing that? That would have immediately stood out to them. But God, who is merciful, does not put into us based on the condition of our heart. He does not pick and choose who is going to hear his word and say, well, he's more receptive now, so only he can hear or he's the... No, God is merciful, casting it all in all different directions. And aren't you glad that God's seed can enter into your life regardless of the circumstance and he can change what your heart and life is like? So that would have immediately stood out to them. This is a terrible sower. (laughs) Why is he so bad at throwing seed? But then notice he talks about the condition of the soil and that's what he really focuses on. Notice his explanation. The sower, he never really says anything about the sower in particular. Verse 37, he gives us another parable in which they're sowing, and it says the sower is the son of man. So some people think that he's talking about himself here, but he doesn't give us that. It's not, nothing's elaborated. The seed, it tells us, is the word of God. Now look at the soil, and we'll wrap up. Notice the condition of the heart receiving, it's the condition of the heart receiving the word. And the first one is this hardened heart Notice what he says in verse number 18. Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. Listen. He says, are you listening, disciples? Hear this. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not. And that doesn't mean they, like I understand algebra when someone teaches it to me or I don't understand it. It's not, it's not just talking about comprehension. Un, the word understand there is sort of a, a fully involved, I hear it, I know it. And I love this truth, and I've applied it to my life. That the word understand there kind of encompasses all of that. So the one that hears it and then loves it, accepts it as true, and applies it to their life, it says that's. But the one that doesn't do that says, "Then cometh the wicked one, and catcheth away that which is sown in his heart." This is he which has received the seed by the wayside. He says there are some people whose heart is so hard, and their mind doesn't receive God's word at all. And he says, and when that's the case, it is easy. I mean, by the time it is down, the birds come get it. Boom, take it away. Now, I want you to think for a moment. Yes, that can be the condition of a lost person. The majority of us in this room this morning are Christians. 
That can also be the condition of our lives. That can be the condition when we walk in to church on Sunday morning or Sunday evening or Wednesday night. When we sit down with our Bible and read, hopefully that we are at least doing that. And we sit down to read our Bible and we read God, the truth of God's word. And our hearts are so hard because we have chosen to do things our own way or we make it up with it. I'm right or we kind of justify what we're doing in our lives based on our other deeds. Our hearts are so hard to God's truth. We think we've got it all figured out that the seed lands and it's not there. By the time we get to the car, it's gone. I, I, I leave my, uh, my recliner or my study table and I head to work and already the truth of God has registered nothing in my life because my heart is hard against him. You don't have to be in absolute rebellion, living in deceitful wickedness for your heart to be hard against God. You just have to be in the right, lazy, apathetic condition not to listen and heed his spirit. And your heart can be just as hard as the concrete wayside. And the devil can come in and take it all away. And you have no growth. Have you ever, think about that for a moment. We, we sometimes look at this as everybody out there in the world. When, when's the last time you sensed growth spiritually in your life from the Lord? Have you sensed that recently? If not, it's a proof or a description of a hard heart. Notice verse 20. But he that received the seed in stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and anon with joy he receives it, yet he hath not rooted himself, but dureth for a while. But when tribulation and persecution ariseth because of the world, because of the word, by and by he is offended, meaning he falls away. Think about what he's saying here. And this is another indication he's not just speaking about people getting saved or not getting saved. He's talking about us and how we receive God's word. Because he says the seed is planted and it springs up with joy. Man, that was so good today. Maybe today's sermon or maybe not today's sermon, a different sermon or your time. Your, that was so good what God taught me. But then there's no dwelling on it. There's, no, there's excitement about it, but there's no submission to it. There's a thrilling feeling in the heart and the soul and the spirit, but there's no application and there's no commitment to it. And so it says when he then faces tribulation, those stones, they, you start to grow down and you hit a rock. You hit some struggle, tribulation. You hit some trial, it even says. And it even says because of the word. So the very thing that's planted in us, that is growing in us, when we face trials because of what God is doing in our lives, it says they, they can't push against that, and they fall away. And isn't that the case, the truth sometimes? We're so excited about what God taught us, but there's no commitment to it. There's no submission to it. There was no repentance in it. It was just excitement about it. And so we feel like we're growing spiritually, but we just one right after the other, we just keep revolving around the same wheel of discouragement and sin in our lives because we're not really submitted. We just get excited at the right time. Submission means I understand and I apply it to my life. And Jesus says, if you feel like you grow and every time you start to grow spiritually within a few days or a few weeks or a few moments, it's stunted by something, by a harsh word from somebody at work, by the first argument or, or um, emphatic conversation that you have with your spouse at some point during the week, the first discouraging thing that happens in your relationship with your kids this week, the first 
time that something unexpected comes into your life and it's discouraging, the first time you hit that and it just seems to everything that you felt like when you were growing and everything that all the truth that God had put into your life and the way that you were submitting to it, it all just seems to go away so fast when it faces challenge. If that's the case, your heart might be here this morning. And then there's another kind of ground he lists. Notice it's the thorns. He says in verse number 21, yet have no root in himself, but dureth for a while, but when tribulation and persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he's offended. He also, notice he says he also, it's kind of tying these two together. He also that received seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word. And the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and becometh unfruitful. That's the way he says some seed gets in, it grows, it looks like things are going to go well, but eventually and slowly other stuff just starts to creep in. The, the, the stony ground gives this idea of it goes in, it grows in a burst, and then boom, just like that, it's dead. The other you don't sense as much. God's truth is growing in my life, but so are some other things. So there's some, some things that I care about, some some worries and some discouragement, the things of the world, the, the condition of my mind and my life and all these things. And I'm letting other things grow in there with the word of God. And eventually I have fed one more than I have fed the other. And my spiritual life is being choked out. Have you ever felt that? So you get the sense you felt all of these? <laughs> like times where God's word gets laid on your heart and there's nothing there. Times where God's word goes in and you're excited and it dies fast. Times that it goes in and you're, you're growing, and then months later you realize, where did that go? And you look down, and the plant is dead. The thing that God had sown into your life, it's, it's dying, it's gone, because we've overwhelmed it with everything else in our life. And then he finishes with the good soil. I'm glad that Jesus finishes with hope. But he that received the seed into the good ground, he that heareth the word, notice, and understandeth it. I can't emphasize enough. Understand does not just mean to comprehend but it means to get it, love it, and apply it. And so the one that hears the word and then submits to it, makes it a part of the way of their life, this one, he bears fruit. He bringeth forth hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. Now, again, we're not an agrarian society, so you may not know what that is. For most of the crops they were selling or, or producing, I am told, I'm not a scientist, but I am told they were produced about 7 to 7.5 times. So for every seed that goes down, it's going to produce seven times that much seed or fruit when it comes in. So even just to have a tenfold crop production would have been amazing. But Jesus uses this emphatic speech. He's saying, and when God's word goes into your life, it's so much more than even throwing corn out and whew, we have a whole field all of a sudden full of crops. He says, hundred times that. The word of God can change your life and produce things in you that you cannot do on your own. That the Holy Spirit and God's Word can do in you and for you and through you. And there's no way else this happens. So I want us to finish with a short application this morning. And if you've got a pen, you can jot some of these things down. It's just really just a word by each of these. What is this first heart? Let's put, let's put some feet to it and apply it to our lives. Or else the parable hasn't done its job. Not because of the parable. Notice that Jesus never talks about the seed. Good seed, bad seed, wet seed, damp seed, moldy seed. It's, the seed is good. Because <laughs> if the seed is the word of God, it's always good. 
it's, it's, it's fine to do its job. The sower is not making mistakes either. He is sowing it. It is our hearts where the trouble comes. And number one, he's talking about an unreceptive heart. The, the one by the wayside is when we are unreceptive. When we justify one behavior with another that we do well, when we establish strongholds of sin and we pack down the soil of our hearts, every time that we refuse or say no to a certain teaching of Jesus and justify it by saying, well, I say yes to Jesus in so many other ways, it, it, this place is not that bad in my heart. My anger, my temper, my greed, my lust, you fill in the blank. That's not that bad because everything else in life is all right. That's an unreceptive heart. We would think it would be foolish for someone to do otherwise. Eventually, you don't feel like anything at all. You become like a road that the world has just driven over. The world works hard against what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You say, I do these things but not other, and we become unreceptive. Number two, the unproductive heart or the uncommitted heart. There's no room. There's no root. There's no commitment the experience, the gatherings of the church, the excitement takes hold, but there's never anything deeper. If the most excited that you are about the Lord during the week is during a song that someone is singing or a hymn that we're all doing together or an emotional moment of a sermon or prayer, something is wrong in our hearts and it's not going to last. The word is not applied to our lives. There's no daily engagement. There's no surrender to the living Christ. There's a shallow root of Christianity that justifies itself by its own merit, by its own status, and by its own actions that says, I'm okay. Look at my growth for just a minute, for just while it's evident. But it dies when it is tested at all. Too many Christians live comfortably on the outskirts of real relationship with Jesus. And when there's any pushback, persecution, trouble, or tribulation, they wither. And number three, there's a destructive heart. What do I mean destructive? When we introduce things into our heart that consistently crowd out and choke out the word and make us unfruitful to it. This is a divided heart that keeps one foot in the world and one foot with Jesus. And when we look more like the world than we do like Jesus, this doesn't mean, and what I mean by this, that doesn't mean clothing like we actually physically look. It could apply to that, but I'm not saying when we look more like the world, like visibly, but when we respond, what do you, what do you mean? Notice verse 22, how is this person more like the world than like Jesus? Notice the phrase, he that also is that received the, the seed among thorns is he that heareth the word. Notice this phrase, and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke it out. I mean, he's, he's being very specific here. The word care there, it's other places in Scripture, cast all your cares on him for he careth for you. The, it, it literally means a, a worry, an anxious worry. He says, seed gets planted into their lives, it begins to grow. And the, the same anxiousness and the same worry that the world has about whatever it worries about, you worry about too. And then the deceitfulness, it says, of riches, the promise that it can't uphold, the constant thinking about it, the hope that riches or the things of this world can't fulfill. He says, if I, you don't ever have that feeling, if I could just get this, if I could just have a little more, if things would just go better, if this wouldn't happen to me, then I'd be able to serve the Lord better and even be more. Isn't it interesting? We say, I could be more spiritual if my physical world was in a better place and situation. 
And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. The ones who hear the word of God and then allow it to be choked out by worrying about all the same things that anyone that's not a Christian worries about. I have put in you hope. He says, come to me, all you that are heavy laden. I will give you rest for your souls. You weary people, come to me and find rest. He says, but rather, sometimes we take on the burdens of the world. We take on the mentality of all the others. And it's destructive and chokes out. And then the final one, the productive heart. This is a heart that is clear of distraction. It's tilled up to open death, depth. It's plowed up and softened to receive and allow Jesus to engage in every facet of our lives. It's interesting that in their agricultural society, even sometimes a little different than ours today, they would sow the seed and then plow the seed into the ground. So it gives this idea of the seed is thrown out, it's received by the soil, and then even more work is done to plow it and entrench it deep in our lives. Do you just sit around and just hope that God teaches you something spiritually each week? Or do we seek to grow and follow and chase after him? You're not going to ever follow Jesus. No one ever followed Jesus on accident. It didn't happen. And when Jesus gives this parable, he's not giving the idea that sometimes seed just hits good ground and just happens to grow. There's work that goes into it. Like, can you imagine telling a farmer that had thousands of acres of corn, be like, man, this must be the easiest job in the world. You just drive around and put seed in the ground. It rains. You don't have to do anything for four months. And then you drive around again, pick it all up, and put it in a tractor trailer and dump it off. And you don't have to do anything. No. There is labor that goes into that. And when Jesus says good soil, he's not saying accidentally you're going to grow for me. You will never follow Jesus on accident. It will only be on purpose. The difference, I want to close with this, the difference between the crowds and the disciples. What was the difference? You see it? What was the difference between the crowds and the disciples, the multitude that he taught the parable, and the disciples? What's the difference? The disciples came to Jesus and asked, why are you doing this? And they do it in other places. He teaches a parable, and it says the disciples came to him and said, please tell us the meaning of the parable. And isn't that interesting? The ones that Jesus is talking to that are rejecting and turning him aside, the difference between them and the ones that turned the world upside down for him are they were willing to humbly come and say, we don't understand. Please teach us. We don't get it. Please change us. And they were willing to look foolish in front of their Savior, saying humbly, I can't do this. And then Jesus worked in them and through them. So let's finish with that application this morning. Are you willing to come to Jesus? Where is your heart spiritually? Which of these grounds would most describe your life at the moment? In fact, you can be a number of these things in a number of different ways. You'd be unreceptive just to some certain things that Jesus is teaching in your life. You can feel like you're growing quickly, but you're facing trouble and turmoil. You can feel like you're growing, but you're introducing all the distractions and the worries of the world. Are you growing in Jesus this morning? Because if not, there's something that needs to change. You can't do it just on your own by more work and more Bible reading, but it comes by God's Spirit. It comes by Bible reading. It comes by spiritual discipline. But it comes by coming to Jesus like the disciples and saying, 
I'm not getting it right now. And I need you to teach me. And so let's ask him to do that this morning. Father, we are thankful for your word today. This is a a passage of scripture that we're familiar with. But one that the principles we often ignore. And so teach us and help us. Lead us to respond to you. Not to simply have the seed grow for a moment, but to understand it. To hear the truth, to love it, and to apply it to our lives. Help us not to be Christians in our name only, but by our deep desire to follow you. And we come to you this morning like the disciples, admitting we don't get it all. And we need you to teach us. So we ask that you would do that this morning. Give us renewed commitment to your word that we would not be unreceptive. Give us renewed strength and commitment to follow that we would not be uncommitted. Give us clear out, help us to come to you to rest in our souls, to clear out the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of stuff so that we can have a clear and clean heart to grow through you and for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand if you would. Are you responding to Jesus? When's the last time that you mentally, spiritually, emotionally, bodily, fully responded to Jesus teaching you? Not just, oh, that's a good truth. Jesus, I remember when you taught me that last time. But like he taught you anew and you responded to it. And may we do that this morning and each day of our lives. Let's sing together. And then verse of invitation, let the Lord do work in our heart. See.